On this episode of China Unscripted, China sets its sights on the Pacific, and it's found a friend in the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands. Is this a prelude to Chinese military expansion? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang, and I'm Matt Ganesha. And joining us today is Celsus Talafilu, the advisor to the Solomon Islands Malaita Province's premier, Daniel Soidani. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, my pleasure. You know, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and uh, Solomon Islands pr- Prime Minister uh, uh, Sokovari have signed this security deal that have gotten, you know, a lot of people worried because it could put a Chinese military base there. You know, that has lots of people worried, but you and uh, Premier Daniel Sudani and the entire Malaita province uh, have been worried about China for a lot longer than that. Uh, why is it? Why, why have you been worried about China for so long? Well, thank you. Uh, I think firstly, um, if we are to go back uh, a little bit in terms of uh, how this thing all started, uh, it would be worthy of knowing that I, I was part of Sokovara's government when it started uh, in uh, 2019. So, the, so this whole um, switch issue, I was, I was there. Uh, I, I've seen how it rolled out. And, uh, this is the switch. That's when uh, Solomon Islands went from recognizing Taiwan to recognizing the People's Republic of China. That's right, exactly. So I, I think, or uh, it is my, it is the the obvious observation that when the switch was made, you know, uh, culminating to the switch, there's a whole lot of activities that uh, have taken place including the government policy, the, the current government DCGA policy uh, that uh, I participated in putting together. So when the interactions take, uh, took place uh, at that time, uh, as someone who was with the government, you start to notice that, uh, you know, the, the responsible government aspect of, of the system uh, somehow has been uh, overlooked and they are interested uh, political views uh, and uh, political drives, I suppose, within this current government that have bring this thing uh, very aggressively. And if I may mention one, one, one more thing, uh, the coalition parties that are made of the current government uh, have different manifestos when they went to the polls in, uh, in 2019. And it's fair to say that none of them uh, has uh, made any strong reference uh, to to a diplomatic switch of some sort, except the party that I was part of, uh, the Democratic Alliance Party. We had in our manifesto a statement saying there is need to review diplomatic relations, especially diplomatic uh, missions of Solomon Islands uh, abroad, and to find out whether uh, they are worthy of holding on to or uh, there's need to, to see whether uh, it would be good to downsize some of these things. So that's the entry point for the current uh, coalition. They've used that opportunity to bring in the one China policy at the time, if I, if I remember correctly. So, and, and when all these things, you know, uh, happen, there were interactions uh, that has happened. Um, the Americans were, were back. Um, there were big discussions about support. And um, then, uh, it, amidst 
those conversations, uh, the current prime minister was saying that the switch will only happen, I would only happen after thorough, you know, discussions and um, consultations and all those things. And there was there was mention of um, uh, at least a number of reports that the government at the time uh, would have re relied on uh, before making the switch. And eventually, uh, of the I remember of the four reports that was mentioned, uh, I was I was there when when uh, USAID and other donor partners were having a meeting with the current prime minister, and he mentioned this to them that you know this is the process that uh, the government will took, and uh, and it so happened that at the end, you know, those process has not been uh, complied with. Uh, there was only one report uh, that the government relied on uh, to. To actually make the switch, and that that report uh, was produced by a bipartisan um, a parliamentary group, uh, mostly members of parliament, both sides of the, of the house, the government side, uh, was chaired by the current um, uh, Somalian ambassador to to to, to Beijing, Novak uh, Fukui. Um, so you could see, if you look at the trajectory, there wasn't any proper uh, no handling of the issue, uh, it's far from it's far far from being honest and uh, truthful. Those things that the, the the current government, especially the prime minister, was was making known to the donor family and even to Solomon Islands to the national parliament, was not uh, being held on to. So if we started a relationship based on on those things, how could we? How could um, you know people? Uh, believe that uh, such a thing is a good thing because it started off like that. So, so basically what you're saying is, you know, for something as major as, you know, switching diplomatic ties from Taiwan to uh, communist China, that's a, that's a pretty big thing. And, uh, you know, the government said like, oh, you know, we'll have a full discussion about that. And then that didn't happen. In fact, it seems like, you know, people with, you know, close ties to Beijing kind of pushed this all forward kind of under the table. Correct, and uh, if I could, if I may go back as well, like I've mentioned, uh, you know, during the national general elections, there wasn't uh, any discussion of SAS with with the electorates, so that people are aware that this is part of of any government that is coming into being. Uh, so that whole discussion wasn't part of the whole, uh, you know, the um, the election period. Now, when when this government come in and, and this this coalition thing happened. It is even even strange for me that when we had when we put the, the uh, policy document together, there was a, a splinter group or, or there was a small group within 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 the, the coalition that that say that they will have a separate party, and and that they would be the ones who champions the one China policy issue, but then that you know that that group never never registered their political party, and they eventually uh, joined the our party that belongs to, to the current government. And then uh, some of you or some, some people would know that even the current prime minister hasn't had a party prior to, to the election. He was a, an independent candidate and then came into, elected and then tried to put together a party. So, so those, those things have played out there uh, and wasn't properly you know, put to the people, I suppose, uh, so that people can engage and see what is this thing. Uh, so that's the main 
sticking point with Malita province being, as you know, being the populated province in the, in the Solomons, they have the feeling that, you know, China is a, is sort of, a, is an un, unknown entity in terms of, of, of governance belief systems uh, that are totally different from, from ours in the Solomons. So there's, there is that uh, concern that if we are to engage uh, with this entity, this new friend uh, who has, who is very powerful, of course, and, uh, and that powerfulness of that of the new friend is quite different from from what we, we used to have with, with the Western world. Right, so you talk about uh, China having different values from the people of Malaita province. Uh, what are those values, and why is that important? So, uh, so Malaita province, uh, even before Christianity, we are a people that believe. In uh, in uh, in supernatural things, uh, and we have a relationship with the with the, with with the higher beings. So so that's part of our our sort of a part of our society. Now we know that China is an atheist state. Um, how would that play with us in terms of if we are to to talk about development and the aspects that are, are related to development? You know, morality, uh, you know, ethics, uh, and, and 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 ensuring people's uh, properties and belongings are uh, well catered for within the system. So, so that's the kind of thing I think Malit province uh, and many other uh, societies in Solomon Islands and other provinces, we already have that sort of like the fundamental thing that we are, as people, related to things higher than us. And, and that is very useful um, to as we go into uh, aspirations of development, whereas China, uh, in this case, although uh, the, the current prime minister was championing, say when you went to to Beijing, he attended a, a church and then said that you no know, China uh, also uh, accommodated Christianity and all those other things. But it for us the system, you know, the Chinese Communist Party as a system, based is based on atheism. Which is totally different from ours. We are not an atheist society. We are a believing society. Although Christianity came later, we have already been a society that believes in in, in the higher beings than us. So, for our audience members who aren't Christian or maybe uh, are atheist, uh, help help us understand why that issue is so important. I mean, can't you just get along with people that have a different value system, or is there something in particular? that makes it really hard to work with China, or maybe some example of it being really hard to work with China? I, I suppose it, it boils down to the state apparatus. Is the state prepared to able to mitigate these things that we are worried about? You know, is the state laws, regulations, uh, able to ensure that uh, our systems are not intruded into or, or been, uh, been used or been uh, tampered with, so I think that's that's what uh, is that's where the concern lies. Like, of course, we can relate to others, but we relate based on what, uh, you know, based on being as being human beings or as being a state that has powers to look after its people. So, so I think that's the, the real concern. And so, uh, you know, the Solomon Islands has had a relationship with China and Chinese companies for much longer than just since the switch in 2019, right? Uh, what kind of um, 
business interactions have uh, have you had with China, for example, uh, logging? Right. So logging is is uh, uh, is the big one. Uh, relations, the relationship is, is, is such that China is the main market for uh, logs from the Solomon and, and I suppose other parts of the world as well. So that's where, you know, because of that market, and uh, and we noted in the Solomons that, you know, mainly it's the Malaysians, uh, Malaysian Chinese, I suppose, uh, who who participated in, in the logging industry in the Solomons for a long time. And it's a very messy uh, industry, I know. It's uh, obviously a very corrupt one, uh, and they set the rules. They even have a a, a forest association that are mainly uh, uh, from. I mean, mainly composed of the composition of of, of the forest associations are mainly loggers. You know, the the the, the those people who are foreigners, especially the Malaysians and others who are in the industry. So they sort of like capture the whole thing, uh, whereas. The people who have the resources, in this case, the Solomon Islanders, are just participants uh, uh, that have very little influence in ensuring their resources are more beneficial to them. And this group even affect the way government, you know, the government, you know, uh, put its laws and regulations in terms of the forest industry. So that that is a big thing, like because the industry is able to to support you know political. Or politicians uh, within Solomon Islands, they they have that relationship with this. Uh, at the end of it, it's their interest that is paramount more than the interest of any common person in the Solomons. So the these sort of foreign and Chinese-run companies they come in to extract lumber, and they also set policy, and they get their politicians elected. That's is that exactly so. If you look at the, the logging for that matter, say example, this 100% the operations is made up of 100%, you know, uh, packets. Of that 100%, 60% of, of, of whatever is in through the operation belongs to the foreign companies. And, and then, uh, I think 20% belongs to the government in terms of the, uh, normal, you know, tax and uh, export and all these duties. And the resource owners ended up with, uh, I think it's uh, another 20%, but of the 20%, 5% of it goes to uh, the license holder, the patient that holds the right over the forest in terms under under the current uh, laws of the Solomons. And the the, uh, the resource owners or the tribes that own on, on these resources, they, they took 5%. And even the 5% and the, 25% and the 15% that belongs to uh, the people in the Solomons, they are even taxed by the government. So you can see there is already you know, imbalance of, of how the industry really supports people. Most of it would end up uh, with foreign companies. And this thing is not set in law. It's set by practice. And, and the practice, the argument behind the practice is that, you know, the operators incur more cost than others. Uh, whether that is true or not, there has to be a meaningful analysis of this thing so that people understand but there hasn't been any sustain of their interest in the industry because they take the big portion of it. They would make, make sure that you know what the interest in it's, uh, is, is protected uh, through uh, ensuring the, the politicians that they support ended up within the government system to protect that, that interest of theirs. 
Well, how about the logging jobs? Like, are at least the jobs, the people who actually are the lumberjacks, are those Solomon Islanders? It's a mix of Solomon Islanders. And mostly, uh, the, you know, when you look at the job, the higher-end ones has to be foreigners, people from Malaysia who, you know, operate, uh, you know, camp masters or who operate the heavy vehicles and all that. It's only the smaller ones like failing of trees uh, with chainsaws that belongs to, to, to the laborers from the Solomons. But the higher paid ones within within that industry also are held by 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 foreigners uh, who are who have been imported to Solomon Islands uh, in under the and the arguments that they are cheap uh, cheap labor of some sort. So so those are the, the things that really happen. Uh, with the uh, for uh, the logging industry, and uh, then recently, uh, because there were reports that were produced saying that the logs have run out, you know, the mining uh, the logging companies have now shifted uh, towards the, the mining industry, and they have uh, have their, you know, their, the the politicians that they support uh, readily waiting there to to ensure what they what they uh, ventured into is supported by, by the government system. So China is basically stripping the Solomon Islands of all its resources. I would agree. I would agree. It's the it's their market. It's their market that you know uh, that is feed on 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 the logging industry of Solomon's. If there is no market for it, I wouldn't. Uh, it might be logged, but maybe in the practice, maybe it controlled. Uh, you know, by the markets, there were standards set by the markets that uh, the producers need to to at least follow. To ensure the practices is is uh, properly managed uh, in the at the country level, but at the moment uh, there's very little uh, of these things happening, and, and they were even uh, what they call uh, price price transferring within that mechanism that you know the logs are paid at a lower price, and as it goes through the process, uh, it's been paid at a higher price that is not known uh, by the locals. Do you think Sogavari has listened to people's concerns? Well, we have to look uh, look at the sort of like the evidence out there. What has what has he done that would be reflective of him being a listener uh, to to the concern in the Solomons? So far, it has not been the case. If you followed him closely, his political journey was that is a one that that is full of controversies. Uh, uh, things that he has done and, and the way he he ended up in the prime minister's position has always uh, a reflective of of someone who looks for power to ensure he is in that position uh, to ensure what he thinks and what he thinks best uh, is good for the people. So if you look closely at sort of any relationship, there is no evidence in in my view. Uh, that would say that, look, he's doing this, he has done that, and that's what people want. So that has not been the case, and we have seen riots and concerns where people uh, came about and, and uh, unfortunately uh, ended up in uh, in a lot of distractions. Now, you, you mentioned the riots, and uh, last November 2021, there were pretty substantial riots in Onyara, the capital of the Solomon Islands. Uh, what were those about? How do they relate to Sokovari and to China? So to to uh, to get an idea about how that end up end up the way it ended up, 
you, you can look back to the history of Solomon Islands, especially the political history. And this, what has happened in November is not an isolated thing. There was riot in 2006. There was the ethnic crisis that we have had from uh, 19, I think 1998 to 2003. And even that, before the country went into independence, there was already division uh, amongst the different islands, province in the Solomon that uh, concerns political you know, political powers should be given to people and devolution of, of, of functions to the provinces. So, Sogavara was there when, when, when ethnic crisis happened. He was the prime minister during that time, I mean, when the Townsville Peace Agreement was signed. He was there uh, during the uh, 2006, 2006, 20, uh, uh, Riots, and he's still here. I mean, in the November uh, riots. The fundamental thing is there's nothing done by the government uh, to address the concerns that the people have in regards to, you know, uh, political issues and and how the resources of the country is run. For example, under the Townsville Peace Agreement and Part Four or Five, I suppose there was clear. Clear, you know, requirements that the government should address the issues concerning Guadalcanal Canal and Malito Province in terms of uh, development. So th- those are the same concerns. I think legacy concerns that still come true uh, without being addressed uh, by the government. And what they are doing is is trying to suppress people, uh, not to not to talk against uh, you know the government and, and hoping that what they say is what the people want. So what has the government's uh, response been since the riots in November? Have they changed anything? Uh, well, if there is anything that has changed, they have now signed an agreement with uh, China to bring in more force uh, to suppress people. I think that's the only change you can see. There, there was a report that uh, I had read that said China had offered to send a number of its own security forces along with weapons and armor and some other gear. But it was unclear whether China actually ended up sending those those soldiers. Do you know what happened with that? From when when the document was leaked concerning that issue, uh, the government came out and said that they, they have not agreed uh, on that matter. Uh, but for me, the I mean, for a lot of Solomon Islands, it's the secretiveness of the of the government whether what the government says is 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 is, uh, is truthful or not, because so far things have have not been truthful. So who who should believe uh, what the government said? After all, there are things that the government has not properly done and have not informed the uh, the public at large about its uh, its doings. So yeah, from 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 them, uh, they came out and say yes, the there was there was a. There's a request made by the embassy in, in the Taiwan, uh, sorry, the Chinese embassy in the Solomons, and, but and it ended up in being uh, uh, not approved by cabinet. Our viewers may not be uh, familiar with the security deal, the secret security deal you mentioned that Prime Minister Sogavari signed with China. Can you tell us a bit about that? So this is um, this is a concern. Before the uh, before the security deal was sort of like constructed, I think the current construction comes out 
in reverence uh, to the November riots. It, it was because of that event that uh, you know the government sees is fit. I think there was some conversation that the government had with China to ensure uh, that this thing come about. But before that, if you follow closely the public media, especially from from the Chinese embassy, the uh, the ambassador already made made mention of of Chinese uh, personals coming into the country and would be helping their Chinese nationals. So that that was something mentioned before the security was done. So I I suppose the conversation has already been there uh, before the security uh, uh, pact was uh, was signed. To have Chinese police come to help, help these Chinese companies, like the Chinese people living in the Solomons, is that right? Uh, I, it wasn't clear, but they were saying the Chinese investment. But as far as we know in the Solomons, there are individual Chinese that have run mostly the retailing and the wholesaling in the Solomons. The only big investment, uh, but shouldn't belong to, to China, it belongs to the Solomons, is the Pacific Games uh, construction of the stadiums and all that. We have not seen any other Chinese investment uh, apart from there may be the, the proxies in the logging industry, now in the mining sector. So when they mention investments, uh, it's kind of interest like what investments are you referring to? Uh, so, so, so what the Chinese are, are fundamentally saying is those Chinese people that are ra- running shops in Honiara and all these things are, are their investments, I suppose. So that's why they bring in these people to, to help uh, ensure the investments that belongs to China is protected. If because it, it, at the moment you would not see any such major investments apart from those that I've mentioned. The 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 greatest concern about the security deal is that someday that could result in a Chinese military base in the Solomon Islands. Have you seen any indication that Chinese forces might already be in the region? If you stayed at Honiara there is a development that has raised a lot of concern in the western side of, of, of the capital uh, called Mamara Estate. And it is interesting that the public is able to observe that it, it is highly likely the security people that are look after that property are Chinese, and it seems that they are holding on to arms. That's what the observation that a lot of people have said. Whether that is true or not, these are the kinds of things that you know, it's out there, and people are concerned about. And for for Malita Province, for and any right-thinking Solomon Islander, if you look at the way Sokovare and his government has been has been addressing issues uh, of Solomon Islands, they are quite not honest. You know, the, the things that have done were were denied at the first place, and when these uh, documents came, they they explained it a different way. So why should why should anyone uh, believe what they are saying now? Because uh, because their practice has not been an honest one. So so whilst they were were singing the you know song that saying that they they would not allow any Chinese uh, military base in the Solomons, the agreement itself, in, if you look at it, like many commentators have have said, it's very open ended, and some of the terminologies within that agreement. We don't understand or we don't know what these things would would practically mean. And and, and lastly, Solomon Islands in comparison to China, Solomon is a very weak state. Now, if a powerful you know uh, country like China would want to see things happen, 
it would not be difficult to see that they could able to force their way in uh, as they have done already. Well, so that's a very good point you make. Like, you, we, we can't trust the Sogavari government. We can't trust China, obviously. Are there many foreign journalists or foreign officials coming to the Solomon Islands and keeping an eye on the situation, seeing if there is moves towards stationing Chinese troops, military equipment on the Solomon Islands? Who's keeping an eye on that? Yeah. At the moment, unfortunately, it's not because of the COVID thing. It's the requirements under you know the COVID regulation that you have to apply, and and you know the government would definitely use that uh, you know that uh, that space to uh, filter who they want to come into the country or not. So that is um, that is hard to uh, at the moment. There's not much foreign, I think, foreign uh, media in the Solomons. So so essentially, this is like a black box. It is. It is. Uh, it is a, a space that uh, uh, is not filled. Um, and recently, there was an incident at Parliament where local journalists were trying to take, uh, you know, the pictures of uh, the Prime Minister when he arrived, and they were stopped by the police. This is sort of like a new thing as well. It's. It's. It's not like that in the past. The Prime Minister is always there, free for people. He's a public figure. Hmm. But mm-hmm. now things have, uh, you know, have changed a little bit, and that raised a concern. Uh, by the uh, the media association of Solomon Islands. Is there, you know, there have been photos of uh, Chinese security personnel training uh, Solomon Islands police, right? You know, uh, how to, um, for crowd control, riot control, these kinds of things. I think the Chinese embassy published some of these photos. And the way that the Chinese... Communist Party controls its own people is quite, you know, severe in terms of both surveillance and, um, you know, how they put down, for example, the protests in Hong Kong, things like that. Is there a concern that they may bring some of those types of techniques to the Solomon Islands and and train Solomon Islands police in that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of crowd control, riot control, things like that? Yeah, definitely. There are People within Solomon Islands, especially from Malito province, where we we are the ones who have voiced our concern in regards to the streets. This is this is real for us. This is a real concern that you know, if there is anything else, what do they have? That's all they have. That's all they have in suppressing people. Do they have other practices that we can rely on? Or that they'll use this other technique that is that is equal to ours? There's none. So what else do we expect? I think that's that's very clear with a lot of Solomon Islanders, except the supporters of, of the current government within Solomon Islands. But people are really concerned that, you know, given opportunity, given time and given, uh, you know, any any other uh, uh, things that happen in Solomon, especially in terms of violence, because of the issue that mattered to Solomon Islanders has not been addressed. So there is, there is bound to be things happen in the same way because the underlying issues that concerns the people have not been addressed. So if it happens maybe in the future, uh, you know, how would the Chinese react to it? Will they be reacting like what we've seen from the Australians and the New Zealand when they were here? Or will they be employing those tactics that we have seen in Hong Kong? And for us, that's the only tactic they have. They don't have any other tactic to use. So we'll definitely th- those tactics will be ended up in the Solomons. Yeah, that's that's kind of terrifying because we were in Hong Kong uh, in 2019, and we saw exactly what the what the police were doing to suppress. At the beginning, it was 
protesters and eventually it was kind of everybody, including journalists and they were spraying tear gas uh, well, at us and everywhere. Well, in particular, the difference between the 2014 umbrella protests versus the 2019, the police were an entirely different beast. Right. And a lot of people think it's because they got that kind of training from mainland Chinese security forces. Yeah. So, so that would be a terrifying thing to happen in the Solomon Islands. And I, I know in your uh, your recent op-ed in The Guardian, you, you called the Solomon Islands close to being a failed state. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? I think that reference is made to state apparatus, the belief in the state authority that should protect people and should look after the welfare of the people. And the incidences that I've mentioned, starting from the ethnic crisis to the riots, these are evidence that, you know, that the powers that are vested on these authorities that are, you know, that are looked after by, by the people in the authority, it seems not to be working. If it if they are working, then these things would be somehow addressed. So if you if you use that as a as a basis to see things, then we have failed. Solomon and I have failed in looking after its own affairs. And if you're in the Solomons, you can feel it physically. You know, from, from Honiara to the provinces and right up to the people uh, in the rural areas. And then I would add also that the security did deal itself. That's an indication of a failed state. Why should you ask someone else to come and look after your, the fundamental thing that you should look after? So if you are looking for someone else to look after yourself, it's a reflection of yourself not able to look after you. And Solomon Island has not been able to look after itself during the tension, the crisis, and even the November riots. In terms of the capacity of the state to enforce what is required of it to enforce has not been there. And also the fact that other people, other you know, people outside of the country are able to come to the, into the country and use opportunities uh, within the government structures to able to facilitate their interest. That, for me, is also an indication that, you know, states not able to look after itself. Hmm. So where does uh, the Malaita province and Premier Sudani fit into this, challenging this kind of regime? What has happened, uh, the premises that Malaita province uh, was standing on, is when, when Sudani... After after the uh, other suite, there was a a communique uh, signed by more or less the elected members of the Assembly of Malta Province, outlining their belief in how the develop, how development should be conducted within Malta Province. Having looked at the history, having looked at the political history as practices by previous leaders, they have developed a principle document that should guide them uh, in in terms of how to develop themselves, both politically and, uh, you know, economically and socially. So that's that's where Malta Province is, is trying to look into and to use that principles that are in the document to advance its uh, interaction, uh, both with uh, the national government and even with the donor families, that this is what, how we see things and this is how we should able to ensure we find a new pathway to develop the place. And at the moment, I, I've had the experience that many of our friends who came to Aoki, uh, the headquarters of Malaysia province, 
have asked at the question of what's even the relationship with the national government and the provincial government, you know, is deteriorating uh, uh, a lot. And and right to what Premier Sridhar was saying that look, if we are to manage a place, there's need for us to talk and to discuss and to look deeper into issues than this accept uh, you know what is coming from Honiara that might not be good for our people. But that's what we are doing. We we try to have a, a mature discussion about the issues that this country has been faced with, especially from Malita, where the bulk of the population is, and most of these things that are happening in Honiara in terms of the riots and in terms of standing up for people's rights, mostly are done or led by, by people from Malita province or organizations that are related to Malita province. So from, you know, Sagavari's standpoint, our Malita province is kind of a troublemaker province for him. Well, what has transpired really showed the thinking, which is, he finally, I've I've been following his his his, his uh, you know his uh, his public uh, public views about what is happening. Finally, in the last meeting of parliament, he mentioned the premier of Malita province. In the past, he always used other Malitan leaders within the government, his deputy prime minister and others, uh, to deal with Malita in terms of uh, of government policy. But now, recently, it's uh, interesting. It's an interesting development that now saw him actually use November, the November riot, and then pin down that whole episode uh, on Malita and especially the Malita Premier. He has not used to that. He has not, in the past, I've not heard him mentioning Premier of Malita province. He would talk and use other languages uh, that would generalize everything. But then I, uh, I've observed that the late, this uh, discussion that he had on the floor of parliament, he actually mentioned uh, the premier of Malit province. So that's quite an interesting revelation uh, in my view. And one would have to look closely why he ended, ended up now talking, taking tough and, and, and even pinpointing uh, people like uh, the premier of Malit province. Well, so Sogavare, backed potentially by, uh, at a minimum, Chinese-trained security forces, potentially Chinese security forces themselves, that seems like a very powerful enemy to make. Yeah, like because I've like we like I've said, because of this secretiveness of things and there is no other institutions or people within Solomon Islands that can you know that can investigate or make uh investigative analysis of these things. It's very difficult for most people of Solomon Islands to understand what's going on. The only thing they understand is when you hear about China, most people will be quite, you know, uh, concerned that because of the practice of the Chinese people in the Solomons, they have related that practice uh, to to the state of China. You know, the no care attitude. You know, paying people that wages. You know, th- those relationships are actually reflective. People use those relationships to reflect how it would be under, you know, under under the Chinese, uh, under the new friends, uh, friendships, way of doing things. Do you think that, I mean, you mentioned that um, Sogavari had taken trip a trip to Beijing. Um, is there more of an effort among, you know, Chinese officials to like cultivate Sogavari and not just him, but are there other politicians in the Solomon Islands that they're trying to kind of get on their side? Yes, yeah, sure. Like, 
if if we have to see what has happened after the motion of no confidence that was that was uh, uh, taken against Sogovara by the leader of opposition, when the motion was defeated, it was the Chinese money that they were given to. It was openly given to to members of the government side, two hundred fifty thousand Solomon dollars, uh, under what is known in the Solomon as the Rural Constituency Development Fund. But the money comes from China through the Prime Minister's office, so. It is not difficult to see how the Chinese have influenced or tried to influence and try to hold on, captured actually, uh, our leaders uh, uh, for their interest. So it's, it's, it's very obvious uh, in that regard. And even before before Sogovara went to Beijing, uh, it it was known in the corridors of of uh, of the Prime Minister's office when I was there. There was conversation uh, from then the. Uh, uh, deputy or not the vice president of the uh, United States, Mike Mike Pence, uh, who have offered Sogovare uh, to go to you know Washington um, uh, to deal with matters of uh, bilateral relations, and Sogovare agreed, but then ended up in Beijing. So you would likely see uh, you can make your own conclusion why he acted the way he acted uh, in regards to the relationship with others and his relationship with. Uh, with a new friend. Well, it is interesting that um, I guess the Trump administration tried to uh, make some kind of connection with uh, Sokovari's government, but I, I guess the, the big reason China has been able to expand its influence so much in the Solomon Islands is because uh, over the past several decades, the West hasn't been a, a presence in the Solomon Islands. And I know in particular, you have criticized Australia's foreign policy as it relates to the Solomon Islands. Uh, what mistakes do you think have been made? The view that I said uh, in the article that I've wrote is uh, pretty much the idea of believing in the central system. Uh, you know, the Australians, of course, they have done uh, pretty uh, pretty well in, in after us, but the concentration of support through a centralized government system that have failed the Solomon Islands it would be better if the, the you know the you know Australia would have uh, expanded uh, its relationship with other players within within Solomon Islands uh, uh, at the provincial level maybe uh, or even the states or even the communities and and to empower people to see you know what democracy is what how how these things interacted. But so far, what has happened is, and there was an opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, opportunity under the Townsfield Agreement, that that document actually, in a way, put forward the issues that, if you address, would address a lot of issues in the Solomon, especially with Borokanal Malta province. But uh, apart from other parts of the, do the document that was addressed, the fundamental issue of economy, of economic empowerment, and the division of political uh, power within the society of Solomon Island has not been addressed. And we keep on relying on a centralized system that has failed uh, Solomon Islands. Because of the nature of the society, it's a society is a very heterogeneous uh, sort of, we are Melanesians, but when you're in the Solomons, you really know there's, there's a lot of difference. And by nature, geographically, we are island. You know, our island has played into these matters just because I... I'm from Malaita province, 
because of the island of Malta province, I belong to this place, and you know other people belong to other islands. So those dynamics, I suppose, would have been a platform to discuss a much more, you know, open discussion about where to go and to able to listen to other players in the Solomon, other voices in the Solomon that have raised these matters other than just the government. So that I think that's the that's the premises that I come from in terms of of echoing the view that uh, you know Australia, although have done you know done uh, done a lot Solomon Islands, uh, it would be even better to see into other spaces in the Solomon that could be supported so that you know what we call democracy can be expanded and people to realize that this is it. We can be empowered like this, so we can make proper decisions about our leaders, our system of government and uh, responsible ones. I think that's that's what I, I was trying to to sort of put forward in terms of that that uh, argument to do with uh, Australia's uh, foreign policy Solomon Islands. So, so you're saying Australia supports the central leadership in Prime Minister Sogavari's government, but Australia is not actually supporting democracy in the Solomon Islands. If you look at it in an indirect way, it could be true. Like you support a, a regime that its practice is not very democratic. Now, how do we believe in that kind of leadership and keep on hoping that through your support, there would be a spring-to-down effect to the people that, you know, this is, this is how it should be. So what I'm saying is, if you observe that there are people within the governments, in this, this case, Sogovara, have captured the system for themselves, how do we address this? It could be useful to look at other powers, power within the Solomons in terms of the of the provincial governments, in terms of the churches, in terms of the tribal people in the Solomons, how do we engage with them so that the discussion about democracy, democracy and democratic rights and all that can be expanded rather than believing in a, a centralized government that has not had that conversation with its people for a long time? You know, the, the U.S. is about to reopen a consulate in the Solomons for the first time in a few decades, and they they recently sent an envoy to the Solomons as well. Um, what advice would you give the U.S. government in terms of dealing with the Solomon Islands, similar to what you've said about Australia? So we, it's a very interesting time in the Solomon, especially with the U.S. If, if you if you you know the U.S. have supported the Solomon Islands uh, uh, so far uh, after after the switch was made. I think the discussion started way, way before that. And there was a project under the USAID or USAID at a 25 million US dollar support that goes direct to the Malita province. Now, people have different views about this thing. Like, the, oh, you're supporting Malita province and, you know, they, they have the assumption that, you know, Malita province will be strengthened and do this, this and that. But when you go back, and as I said, this is what Malita province needs, needs proper support and proper dialogue uh, as approved by the national government, but the discussion needs to happen to empower those people at the provincial level as well. So that's what the, the Americans have done, and I think they will they will see to it and help uh, with other provinces as well. Because the governance of Solomon Islands is not only about the national leaders, it's also about the provincial leaders. That's why the system was set up to address those things. Then if you continue visiting Honiara all the time, and expecting Honiara to have a proper conversation with these provinces, 
we already failed because that has not been happening since independence. So there is a need to 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 enlarge this conversation. To, I mean, the donor partners should have a proper conversation with with national government. Say, look, can this be addressed this way? Or we are looking at addressing this issue this way so that you know that all all these sectors within Solomon Islands or the islands or the province in Solomon Islands uh, grow up together or somehow has a feeling that someone, uh, you know, the system, the government system is helping out in ensuring their lives uh, are better than what they are at the moment. So that's what the Americans are doing. Uh, they have come through that arrangement whereby USAID have contracted entities within uh, entities from, 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 from the US uh, partnering with or, or even registering in the Solomons and then, you know, delivering their support to those things directly at the provincial level, at also at the national level. Some of this, uh, the, some of the the funding that come up, the 25 millions are also directed at ensuring uh, entities within the national level are robust to address issues of investment and trade and all that. So I think that's a good relationship that you related not only at the national level, you try to go down and relate meaningfully also at the provincial level so that people appreciate that this is a relationship that we all being part of rather than watching from the province that something is going on in Honiara and knowing that it will never affect our, our you know our situation in the provinces. I think one of the big challenges is that, you know, there is, for example, infrastructure investment that needs to happen in the Solomon Islands and largely China has been providing that recently. Uh, they said they're going to help expand the largest hospital in the Solomon Islands. Uh, how, where should uh, alternative sources of money come in? Because if there is no alternative to China, China is just going to be the only game in town. Right. So, uh, so far, it's been all infrastructure. For Chinese, I know that they have supported some of the agricultural things yeah, with the Ministry of Agriculture. But how do you see, in, in the context of Solomon Islanders, we have been seeing hospitals, you know, schools, and all that, which are very important for our lives. But there is an aspect of the life of common people in Solomon that has not been addressed: the economic empowerment of people. How could this be helped? And I see the modality that just the Americans are using are quite useful by way of coming, using their private enterprises to establish uh, in a transparent way uh, within society and have that discussion with them so that we establish something that for the ordinary soul man can see that this is something that will help my life, improve my life, uh, rather than you know infrastructures that are huge and big, are centralized in Honiara and has no direct or day-to-day -day meaning to the lives of the ordinary people. We have, of course, hospitals and all that, which is good, but it has to be balanced out as well, I think, uh, with the economies of the country, the people, so that when these things are up and running, the economy is able to sustain the standard that, uh, that people expect those uh, entities to deliver. At the moment, we can build infrastructure, uh, hospitals and all that, but will they be long-lasting in terms of the services expected of them? Would that how that would happen? How, how, how will that happen if the economic aspect of the country and that is belongs to the people because people own the resources in this country, the land, the tribal people. So there has to be that interaction with the tribes, the ordinary people to ensure that their resources are meaningfully, you know, 
dealt with, invested in, so that it affects them and affects the way they make up, make decisions. At the moment, they are at the receiving end. And if, if I may a little add on, there's a scheme at the national level uh, they call the uh, Rural Constituency Development Fund, administered by a ministry within the government system. And what the fund, this scheme is doing is empowering members of parliament to give things to their uh, to their constituency. And most of things that they have given are materials, copper and, and, and iron roofing and all that. Which, again, when you talk about the economies of the people, I think that's not, you would hardly see that happening other than the materials that belongs to the Chinese people in Honiara, Chinese own and run outlets that have been purchased with you know, finances from the Solomons in terms of their taxes that are now being put into the budget of the government and they're abused by the politicians who pay these things. So I think if you look at that scheme, there is nothing for the ordinary people in Solomons. So, you know, if, if Malaita province had, let's say, $100 million to use for what you call a real economic empowerment of people, what would that look like on the ground that's different from the kind of uh, building infrastructure projects that we're seeing from Chinese money? So if you if you if you are a Solomon Islander, the first thing, the first place you would run to when you're in trouble is your tribe. That's where your security is. You have land, you have people, you have relationships there. So that's the entity that we need. I mean, in the case of Malita, we are encouraging that. We, you know, it, it has been a, a somehow people have seen these tribal people who own land and resources as as anti-development because the way they interact with, you know, the machinery of the government. But that shouldn't be it. They, we need to innovate. There is need for innovation that how could we make this entity that is rightly belongs to the people to be a useful tool uh, so that we can engage in terms of investment. So that's what Malit is trying to do under the scale program that I've mentioned under USAID, to see how can ordinary people that their wealth, their commonwealth, is in their land, in their trees, in their people. And that belongs to the tribes. And we shouldn't see tribe as an anti-development entity. It is the entity that made out of Solomon Islands. There hasn't been any proper discussions of how do we make this thing with the people, ensuring that if we are to capitalize uh, in uh, in investment in in this its entity, we need to see it being done properly, transparently, and accountability. Because what we have seen in the in the forestry sector is they made a, the rules and laws in in the international level, then allow those spaces to be occupied or to be used by individuals uh, from 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 these tribal groups, and they have caused you know social uh, disconnections with the people because there hasn't been any proper conversation at that level to allow that okay if these things happen within the, our common resource, this is how it should happen. So I think that's the idea that. Maritime province under what is called a restorative economy policy is driving at to see how could capitalist as a model could be captured under the common resource of the tribal people and used for the common good of the people rather than uh, having individuals who opted to use loopholes with the system to please themselves with common resources. Hmm. A lot of potential there. Yeah, it just it needs a lot more than just money. It needs uh, a recognition of the tribes and other local leaders, and kind of 
allowing them to actually be involved in that decision-making process. China is not going to like that. China, China is the is the op like the Communist Party is the opposite, right? They're a centralized power where the central government tells everyone what to do at every level, and you have to do it exactly their way. And they have no interest in having any other uh, power, right? Because that undermines their own authority. And it really makes it clear why the atheism of the Chinese Communist Party was such an issue. Um, like that's not, they're officially atheists. That's what they push. It's not like an issue. They, they do not have freedom of religion in China. And so these, you know, traditional tribes, like that's just so antithetical to the Chinese Communist Party. Right. It's like any, any group or organization or belief system that's outside of that is a threat. And, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about that being the road to economic empowerment and development is looking at these local tribes or communities. Um, but yeah. to do that, yeah. you, you need China out of the picture. Yeah. So the one thing, for example, terminologies in, in the Solomons played a lot of, uh, you know, misinformation, if I can put that way. You know, terminologies such as communities. If, if you use communities and you drive your development agenda through communities, communities are nothing. It's the tribes. It's the people who own this thing. So you have to you have to drive your conversation that has meaning into these people rather than using some artificial setups and that this is it. I think that's, I mean, it's an intriguing, it's, it's, it's a, like I say, this place in the Solomons, if you study it properly, it's a very diverse place. And like you rightly said, diversity, if you control diversity, then you will, there would be definitely confrontation. Is that Diversity means allowing people to do things in their ways that are all good for us. But if you like, as, as we know, if China, for that for that matter, who's a centralized sort of system, it will definitely go against, uh, you know, the, the, the realities of our society here in the Solomons, that we are a people who have control of our small things uh, in our small spaces. And if you decided to put us together and do away those relationships, it will be very challenging and it will affect people. So China is definitely trying to expand its influence, not just in the Solomon Islands, but in all of the Pacific Island nations. Do you think, you know, sort of all eyes are on the Solomon Islands? Like what happens there will determine what happens in these other Pacific Island nations, whether China or whether China will rule or not? Um when when we have when i met with uh, you know some of the uh, some of the people outside especially australia and others where we have discussion i've mentioned to them before the before the you know before the uh, the security deal i say china actually finally finds somebody of its match in the pacific and that's solvare uh, that's my that's what i i, I that's what i see uh, that is coming through so it, it depends depends on the leadership of these countries. If if you have weak leaders and, and how the society put their leaders uh, together, that, that that's the I think for me that's the key thing. If you have if you have a society that made its decision to have good leaders, that leaders that are transparent, leaders that ensure their people know what's going on, then it would be quite challenging, even if China has money to play around with. So it's for me. It's about that leadership aspect. You know, if, if other Pacific Island countries uh, 
would, uh, uh, through the selection of the people in terms of, of, of election and all that, have good leaders who are able to ensure what is happening on their turf are things that are good for the people and, of course, their relationship with other donors. So it, I think it's time for other donors to see how uh, could this be, uh, you know, could this be supported uh, rather than keeping on with what has happened and ended up what is now happening in the Solomons, like uh, allowing the democratic institutions within country, in this case Solomon Islands, uh, to, to, it's there, but the people that transacted those principles and those things are not been well informed. And so they just thought that this is another scheme of arrangement we can participate and get what is out of it, not knowing that this is about their lives, this is about their place, this is about how who they are. So I think those discussions, in, in my view, in other parts of the of the Pacific, if the, their populations, their people are able to have that mature discussion within their countries and have able to elect people that uh, that stands with what they, they think is best for their countries, the expansion of Chinese would be quite uh, uh, challenging even for the Chinese. I think they believe in money and abusing people and capturing the elites of these uh, countries in the case of Solomon Islands. Their, their methods of doing things, if it's known by the leaders and good leaders in within the region, it could be helpful to at least, you know, I think if we are to relate, we have to relate on this, on this tape, not on what you... I mean, the Chinese would like them to do with what is happening in the Solomons. That's a view I developed uh, based on on the history of Sogovare and how he aspired for power in, in the power structure of the Solomon Island system. And also, I've heard this when I was in, in when I was within when I was at, at the Prime Minister's office that there are there are advisors uh, within within the Prime Minister's office that advocate from some level of a dictatorship. Uh, and they were looking to Fiji as an example because of our difficulties in developing our country because of, you know, the diversity we have and all those things. They, they, there, is this, uh, there is this thinking uh, that some of the advisors within the Prime Office that, that were advocating that I think we need to have a, have a, a, a dictator like Baini Marama who dictated good things. And I think so... Those conversations, while yes, they are this conversation, but it happens within the uh, within a within an office that is very important for 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 Solomon Islands. In this case, the Prime Minister's office. So maybe those are the those are the conversations that culminated into what is happening. Um, and if you look at the, the, the behavior of Sogovar in terms of how it aspired to get power uh, in the various. Uh, times in his political career, especially at the prime minister's level, it's very obvious that it, you can see evidently that he is uh, he has the character of wanting to hold on to that space. And if there is anything that make him to be there for a longer time, it would not be difficult to see that he would aspire for that as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you're the type of person who thinks that a benevolent dictatorship is a good idea, um you know, then, of course, looking to the Chinese Communist Party, you would have, you know, stars in your eyes, right? Look at all the development that this authoritarian regime has been able to do. Uh, and, you know. If, if, if your leader wants to be a benevolent dictator, but they're looking to communist China, 
they're probably not the benevolent dictator. Well, no, that's for. the problem. It's not, it's not a benevolent dictatorship, right? But I think even in the West, we've seen that argument that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, well, sure, they're authoritarian, but they can build cities and high-speed railways and all of this, right. you know, infrastructure development, right? Yeah. 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 So, so Billionaires if I can, like... If I make a comment at that point, you know, when when Sri Dhani uh, decided that Malta Provincial stand and said, look, uh, we have to have a proper discussion about this, they were invited, the provincial leaders were invited uh, by the Prime Minister of its office uh, through the Ministry of uh, Provincial government institutional strengthening. And that is exactly what they were presented with. You know, the high rising buildings that were built by China in Fiji, in Samoa, in other places. So it's like that's the playbook of the Chinese. And, you know, having that picture in front of, of uh, leaders in the Solomon Islands who have very little knowledge about the complexity of how the Chinese government operate, they will. They were attracted to that one dimension only, you know, the good pictures, you know, the these things, rather than going beyond that and seeing how this thing all come about. What aspects of of society we need to be careful about? That picture has not been presented to them, so it's a one sided story. All uh, all one sided story already. Uh, in the case of Solomon Islands, that uh, the presentation happened exactly like you said. It's about the high rising buildings, about this and that. Uh, other than the reality of of a system, how it operates within uh, you know different aspects of a society. Yeah, it seems so strange to me. Like you know, what's what's the point of a high rise building? Like, what's it going to be filled with if the fundamentals of the economy in the region are not good? Then it's just an empty shell. It is. Uh, the premier and I, we were in Vanuatu. I think it was. 2020, uh, there was a conference center that was abandoned by, which is too expensive to be run by any local, and it ended up being given back to the Chinese nationals to run. So that's exactly what, like the point that you raised. Okay, we can have these concrete buildings and whatnot, flashy things, but what's the use of having them whilst we are still suffering uh, economically and, you know, our health systems are not working and all that? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on our show and talking to us. You know, what's happening in Solomon Islands is incredibly important. Uh, it, will, it really will have a big global impact, and it's, it's difficult to get good information out of there. So I appreciate you coming on and telling us directly what's, what's going on there. Well, it's my sincere appreciation as well to be able to, uh, to be allowed to talk on this platform, which is, like you rightly said, uh, it will be very useful to reach out to other Solomon Islanders uh, within within the country, share their views, other than the views of the government that seems to be uh, a government that seems to be secretive about uh, issues that affect lives of ordinary people and even the region and now in, in the world. Before I, before I uh, uh, let you go, the Malaysian provincial government, especially the premier and myself and others, we, we actually physically go around uh, in the province and talk with people. And for the last 39 or 40 years, this is the first time for any premier to, to, to undertake such a program to go and visit people within their villages and talk to them about these issues, complex issues, but at least to relate to them in, in some ways that is useful for them to understand. So I think this is if, you know, donor families want to see the 
communities of Malay Solomon Islands for that matter are supported in this kind of undertaking, it would be useful to have the conversation with them to ensure uh, people understand what's going on, people understand what the system is there, how do they relate to, and how do they ensure it it, it brings to them what they want other than just participating a, in a black hole sort of thing. So thank you again for, for having me and and, and uh, it's been very uh, kind of you to to reach out to, to me and, and have this conversation. And and take care. You and, and uh, Suedane are definitely making some powerful enemies out there. Definitely. Thanks. You know, I kind of can't believe uh, the last thing that um, Celsius was saying about how they literally brought the provincial leaders to honorary and showed them, you know, all the great you know, high rises that the Chinese regime was building in Fiji and these other places. I mean, like, don't we want some of that action too? And in the end, it's just a hollow erection. What? Nothing. Yeah, they erected the buildings that are not useful. Is what, yeah, is what so he they're, means yeah they're, they're abandoned. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's something that, you know, Sogavari has in, in common with Wall Street bankers, right? This this kind of like, oh, yeah, isn't this great? The investment. Well, I mean, like billionaires like Michael Bloomberg, even Elon Musk, they're always like, oh, look at China's, China's investments, China's infrastructure. development, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, this is what happens when, like, the Chinese Communist Party is obsessed with GDP as a measure of success. And the problem with this is that it encourages exactly this kind of hollow infrastructure building because that's what GDP is made from. Well, I mean, but, GDP is made also made from testing like 1.4 billion people for COVID a million times, you know, like it, it, all of right, this. Right, but like all this stuff, but, but, but. It doesn't enrich the it, lives it of actual enrich, people. Right, it doesn't enrich individuals' lives necessarily. And it doesn't empower them in a way like, it's not like the Chinese Communist Party feels that it's successful if it is done a good job of consulting people on the ground <laughs> about what works for them well, in I mean, their they, lives. They say they do all the time, but yeah, it's That's true. what the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference yeah, is all it's, about. It's all about consultative democracy. Right. That, yeah. So it's actually interesting because Xi Jinping um, a couple of weeks ago announced a new infrastructure program. Right, like, like that's what China needs right now. It's more infrastructure. I mean, they had so much infrastructure building that they had to, this is what the Belt and Road is. They were basically exporting their excess infrastructure building capabilities, right? Right, like the, the extra machinery, the extra steel and concrete, the extra labor force with all these extra men because so many women have been uh, aborted so you send over the them, last generation. you ran out of things to build in China, and so now you're going to send them to the Solomon Islands and Africa and all these other places to build, and so these state-run companies can make money and grow China's GDP. Surely that will never reach a dead end. Yeah, I mean, that's why it was kind of funny to see that you know, now they're talking about infrastructure within China too, because now they're the the economy is like it's in bad shape. Well, right? yeah, we, we did a whole episode about how the Belt and Road is collapsing. Yeah, not just that, but also internally in China mm -hmm. because of the the zero COVID policy, all the lockdowns and things like that. So they're kind of going back to that infrastructure playbook again. And interestingly, Matt, what you were talking about about the empowerment thing when. Uh, Celsus was talking about how they want to do things in Malaita province, like go back to the tribes and have mm -hmm. people 
like actually talk to the people and have them decide what to do and economically empower that tribal system. I was thinking about what the Chinese Communist Party does in places like Tibet, where, yeah. right, it's like a traditional, like these people are nomads. They have this like herding, like they, they're herders. They move with their flocks. And so what does the Chinese Communist Party do in order to lift these people out of poverty, right? They you know, take them like they're, they're like, okay, you're not going to be a herder anymore. You're going to go work in a factory and uh, we're going to take you from the land that you're, you've been on for hundreds of years and we're going to put you in these high-rise apartment buildings because that's progress. That's development. Yeah. Well, yeah, if, you're, if your whole GDP is based on like this infrastructure development, like there is no room for herders or tribes. Worker drones, though, you can really use some worker drones. You mean people in the factories? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were you meant like literal drones, oh. since we are talking about like a place where they. Yeah, but but you need you need worker drone factories to build the drones, the drones that then do the jobs to replace the people's jobs. Anyway, it's it's not going to turn out well. No, no. Well, yeah, I really, I am encouraged to see, uh, you know, both the, the Trump and Biden administration have made efforts to uh, get the U.S. back in the Pacific, back with the Pacific Island nations. And so hopefully it's not too late to turn the tide. Good. Let's end on a positive note this time. Excellent. Thank you for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. And we'll talk to you next time.